Hi everybody, I'm Jeff Suckendorf, CEO of UTDs. I don't even know what name my company anymore. Change. We did <laughs> what, that five what, times. Is the name we changed? Did that. Yeah, it's UTD Scuba Diving now, not Unified Team Diving. Anymore. Well, it's Unified Team Diving or UTD Scuba or UTD Diving. Scuba diving. Yeah. You gotta have an official name. It's UTD Scuba Diving. Okay. All right, welcome everybody. UTD podcast. I'm Jeff Seckendorf, CEO of UTD Scuba Diving here as always with our training director, Ben Boss. Hey, Ben. Hey, hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. So this is going to be another one of our obscure questions in the most obscure questions in scuba diving podcasts. And uh, I don't know who has more fun with this, me, Ben, or the people listening, but it's it's hysterical sometimes to collect these questions and figure out what we're going to talk about and, and, um, and, you know, the good, the bad, and the crazy that comes with, with the flow of questions <laughs> that comes in. But uh, we wanted to start briefly this podcast with a, a couple of updates uh, from UTD. So we're going to use this just to talk about ourselves for just a minute. So a couple, uh, we've got like six little points here that are, that are new and what we've worked on. So the first is uh, a new rebreather course. So uh, Ben, you want to talk about that in the JJ? Yeah, sure. Actually, yeah, a bunch of new rebreather courses. We decided to go to the fully closed uh, market and contacted both uh, JJ and SF2 from Scuba Force and uh, went down a long road of talking back and forth. And I started to um, come to an agreement that with certain adaptations to the bailout configuration, we could start offering um, factory-approved entry-level courses on these two machines so that's super exciting so i got onto the computer and started working and put out a bunch of chapters i think it's almost over four hours in total of video materials uh, and now we've just added a bunch of extra videos on top of that with um, instructional videos on how to assemble the gear pack the scrubber and all those sort of stuff so you can have a visual cue uh, as well as the manual and as well as the materials on uh, on the website. So that's super exciting. We did the initial um, course, the, the auditable course, where the uh, factory um, instructors came to audit us, and that all went above expectation. So that's super, super nice and all approved. So now we're just finding fine-tuning a bit and adding those last videos to the materials, and then it's going to go live to the public. So that's uh, super exciting. So right now the instructors are you and Casper in Scandinavia. Casper, yeah. And then and then you'll do an IDC for the guys in Europe and hopefully one um, for the guys in the states pretty quick. Exactly, exactly. That's what we're working on next. That's the next step. Yes. Okay. So cool. That's that's uh, where we are on closed circuit. Uh, we're still teaching the PSCR courses, so those are still available if you're diving semi-closed. And okay, so that's that piece. So online C cards and forms. So this is a piece of, of the, um, uh, the the technology puzzle that we've been working on for a while. And we finally figured out a very effective way of getting everybody's C cards on the web so you can just log on and download the C card. So that's working now. It's working really well. Um, all the new C cards, all the new certifications have online certification cards and show the online forms. Uh, I'm cleaning up everything that's been, everybody that's been certified since uh, January 2020. And it'll be a couple more weeks, but pretty quickly all of those C cards will be online. 
And then I'm working on getting a data dump from the old website so we can start to bring in the, the legacy cards also. Um, but if you are looking for your card online and you don't see it, just uh, send me a quick email, jeff at utdscubadiving.com, and I'll get it all sorted out for you and get it online for you. So that's that's really cool. You can also see all your, your forms that have been submitted since uh, January 2020 on that same page. So that's under where it's when you log in, you, it says, hello, Jeff, or hello, Ben, or whoever you are. Just drop down there, and you'll see a link that says uh, uh, my C-cards and forms. You can click on that. Uh, the other thing we did recently is we have um, stopped the program on student subscriptions for the course materials. And we've gone back to a more traditional model where you buy a course, an online course, and you have it forever. So uh, that's done a bunch of good things for us. It's cleaned up a lot of the confusion that was around the, the subscriptions. Uh, we used it as a jumping off point to really clean up some of the course materials. Uh, so they're all online now. It's a one pro one purchase um, you just, you, you buy it once. The, the new registration workflow is that when you buy the course material, it sends you directly to the registration form. So then you can go ahead and register and, and uh, get connected for your live class with your instructor. And then the other thing we did is on certification, when your instructor certifies you, you'll also get a link to a student feedback form. And we can't emphasize enough how important these forms are. So please, after your certification is over, take two minutes and tell us how we did, because that's really the only way we can get better. Yeah, fill them out. Uh, next thing on my little list is that coaching is continuing. So even though we stopped the subscription model, the coaching system is going strong. So, uh, scuba coaching, we've done a, a, a rack of podcasts on it. So if you're interested in scuba coaching, you can go back and listen to those. But basically this is a way for you to, uh, do a long-term months and months long training program in scuba, working with an instructor who is a coach. And it goes so far beyond a traditional transactional weekend course, right? So we're going to talk about, you know, all the things you would get in that course. You're going to get assignments on gear, on maintenance, on uh, fitness, nutrition, hydration, um, diving outside the box, all of these other cool things that go with becoming um, a diver with scuba diving as a lifestyle more than just as something I'm going to go do once in a blue moon. And uh, so we have a, uh, a few instructors who are coaching right now and more starting. So if you're interested in scuba coaching, give us a shout. There's a section on the website. You can look it up. And uh, again, I'm happy to talk to anybody about uh, the scuba coaching model. It's super cool. Uh, and then the last thing is the podcast we did last time with Simon Mitchell that got amazing traction. So, uh, it, you know, probably one of our most popular podcasts. So you want to talk about that for a second? It's because it was so it was really cool. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was obviously Simon is a big name in the industry. And since we uh, recently completely revamped our complete ratio deco strategy to ratio deco 3.0, we invited Simon to have a look at it and give us give us his points of view, since he's a, a diving physiologist and um, a knowledgeable key speaker on many events. Um, he kind of talked us over. He's also an anesthesiologist, which is a really interesting piece of it because you know he's a, he does gases and the body for a living. Exactly, yeah. he he knows his stuff, and. Um, 
Uh, so that was a great talk. So if you haven't seen uh, the YouTube videos or the listen to the podcast, go have and have a have a listen because it's uh, it's interesting and it really highlights some of the more modern approaches to decompression which we have adopted in Ratio Deco 3.0. So that's uh, yeah. That's in the nice. podcast, we broke it down into two parts. The first part is about um, decompression theory in general, and then the second part is about deep stops. So we know that deep stops can be a polarizing discussion, but um, you know I think we did a really good job staying objective and not judging anything and, and looking at the way that we as an agency have progressed with deep stops, the way the industry as a whole. Yeah. Exactly, and clarifying it up a little bit because it's still very unclear for many people what deep stops, or what's meant by deep stops. You know, it's like, it's still a bit of a strange topic to talk about yeah i mean if you're on an 80 foot 24 meter dive and you know we call the deep stop the 50 percent stop on that right so your deep stop is at you know what 40 feet 12 meters exactly so, so have a listen to that podcast because it's super interesting and and very clarifying to uh, to a lot of people i think yeah it was a fun and it was fun to to meet him and and just talk to him for a couple of hours so so that's there for you guys there's also um we broke it into two parts in the podcast, but it's broken down to three parts on the YouTube channel. So you can go ahead and grab it there. It's it's super cool. So uh, I think that sort of covers what we've been working on the past couple months, right? That's the short news stuff. Yeah. yeah more to come shortly. Yeah. We're but, working um, every day, making it better, making it cooler, making it easier to function in. Um, so that's been really good. It's been really good. So thank you all for uh, for being part of it because, you know, it's just, yeah. you know. We had some good feedback from you guys that prompted us to to look harder into certain aspects, like exactly the, what you mentioned, Jeff, the, the C-card online. It works on the website. It works on the, the mobile browser. And it's just a perfect way to actually show your C-card. Um, What's crazy about that is how simple how simple it ended up being, right? Yeah, we looked at. I mean, so we many looked at so right? many expensive, complex, custom companies with membership yeah. cards, and all we ended up doing was just figuring out a super easy way to get your card online at the time of certification. It, it adds about, I don't know, it adds like thirty seconds to the C card process, and. Uh, and it's just yeah, it's it's great. So uh, yeah. yeah. So so let us know and if it, your card's it, not online, and we'll get it for you. And it's it includes when you're with your certification fee, so that's even better, I guess, for 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 most of the people. Yeah, you I get mean, both now. You get free. a digital online card and a and a printed card. A Every, everybody card. gets the same. So cool. All right, good. So yeah, if you have questions, give us a call. So here's the. Let's get into some of the more obscure questions in scuba diving. So so the first one is not obscure. No, it's actually quite common. <laughs> but it's it's really common, but it still rears its ugly head time after time after time. And um, I guess it's because there's there's got to be a, a global lack of understanding about this topic. And that topic is skip breathing. Skip breathing, yeah. So, all right. So let, let's dig into skip breathing a little bit. First of all, what is skip breathing? You want to you want to define it? Or you want me to define it? Yeah, skip breathing is basically take a breath in, hold your breath for however long, and then exhaling, usually quite sharp, and inhaling again, and holding your breath, and exhaling again, and inhaling again, holding your breath, and basically skipping every breath. So every other breath, yeah. skipping every other breath. Yeah. So, so okay. So this this leads to. 
an hour-long podcast unto itself, but we'll try not to we'll do try that. Try to keep so. it keep it to the point. I mean, we, we can start about why people skip breathe, and in my experience, it's because of uh, two reasons, uh, maybe three three main reasons. A, the unfamiliarity of being underwater and breathing. It's still kind of alien for many beginning divers, so they breathe in and then hold their breath, and then they start to realize, oh, wait a minute, I can actually breathe. <sighs> breathe out, <sighs> breathe in and hold their breath again, and doing it kind of unconsciously like that. The second major reason I've seen it a lot is because of poor waiting and the, the, the uncontrolled feeling about not having complete control of your buoyancy control. So if they feel heavy, they can, they've realized they're at a stage where the diver has realized that, okay, when I take a deep breath in, I stop myself from crashing on the bottom. So what happens is if they take a deep breath in, they stay neutral. And then they exhale, they start plummeting towards the bottom and they hurry to take a deep breath in again to stop themselves from touching the bottom. And they're a bit apprehensive to put that gas somewhere else because now they've figured out that exhaling actually goes quite fast and you actually control your buoyancy quite fast with breathing. And that's the whole point where we want to go towards is that breathing is for buoyancy control. So I think it's a, I think that that's true. Those two things are true. But I, I personally think that there's a, a more prevalent reason why people skip breathe. And that's that there is this thought that in skip breathing, because I'm breathing less times per minute, I'm actually saving gas. Well, that's the third reason. Is that was right? your I third mean, reason. People come, I, would, come, I might have put that past that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, it probably is. But when people come past that point, okay, they're comfortable in the water. They figured out their buoyancy. Now they're in the Red Sea, doing probably deeper dives than they're normally used to that 80 cubic feet is going to disappear faster than they can say scuba tank. And, 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 and they find themselves trying to cheat by skip breathing. And they think they're actually going to save gas by breathing less frequently. Less times per minute. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about... So th- those are three. You said you had a fourth. Remember what the fourth one was? Yeah, the fourth, the fourth one is basically... un unintentional, uncontrolled, the way they breathe underwater. Some people, I mean, and you could, this doesn't really relate to diving. I mean, you can see in daily life, they're breathing through the chest very shallowly. Underwater, you can't really get enough gas. So they're, 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 they haven't figured out really how to use their whole diaphragm in breathing. And it, and it results in a form of skip breathing as well underwater. But it's very less likely to appear. Those first three are, are basically the, the most. Do you remember the shirt that we made? Breathing is about buoyancy. The fact that it keeps you alive is a side effect. I was looking forward to, to wear it on the podcast, but it's in the wash. <laughs> yeah, I have one. I, I, gave, it, I gave it to my grandson. Um, and he wears it to school. It's hysterical. It's got my name on the back, the sign thing. Um, okay, so, but let's talk about the, the, the physiology of... Um, a breathing basically in the metabolism of oxygen in in your system because that's really what we're talking about. So so fundamentally, uh, as you're breathing, you're inhaling a mixture of oxygen and other gases, 
we'll talk about air for now because but it's the same if you have trimix or nitrox or whatever but basically you're breathing in a percentage of gas that, or a gas that has a percentage of oxygen in it you're metabolizing some of that oxygen and then you're breathing out the rest so the general wisdom is you're metabolizing about 5% of the oxygen you breathe in. So on the surface, if you're breathing in 21% oxygen, knowing that air is generally about 21 oxygen and 79 nitrogen, you're breathing in 21 oxygen, you're breathing out all the nitrogen and all but five or so percent of the oxygen. So you're breathing in 21, you're breathing out 16%. You're breathing in 21%, you're breathing out 16%. Now at depth, you still only need that much oxygen, but you're getting more of it because at the higher partial pressures, there's more molecules of oxygen per cubic whatever, and they're going into your system, but you still only need the amount of oxygen that's in 5% of your breath at the surface. So at 33 feet or 10 meters, you're taking in twice the amount of oxygen molecules. So you're taking in a partial pressure of oxygen at 0.42, and you're breathing out an equivalent partial pressure of oxygen at about 0.37 because you just only need that small amount to live. And this is what confuses a lot of people also when you talk about altitude, you know, and, and people start talking about at altitude, there is less oxygen. Nope, there is exactly the same amount of oxygen. There's just less pressure. Less molecules and, and per cu less molecules cubic something. Per, per, per meter, yeah, per cubic meter. Um, so, and the body doesn't really care about percentages. It only cares about the quantity. And the quantity is is basically pushed into your body due to the pressure differential in your body. So if you're trying to trick your body by skip breathing to just inhale every so often and think that if you lower down the frequency of breathing because you have a higher partial pressure, your body is more efficient, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> it just takes whatever <laughs> it needs and that's it. Um, and gets rid of the rest. Exactly. The, the, the body uses as per the energy requirement of your muscles that are working at that time. Here's one, here's one way to look at it. This is really interesting. I've always thought this was fascinating. Um, we don't teach it much in first aid anymore, but remember when we taught rescue breathing, um, artificial respiration where you're breathing into somebody's mouth for them. And the reason that works is because you breathe in 21% oxygen and you breathe out 16 or 17% oxygen into that other person. You breathe in 21, the person gets 16. Normoxic, the word normoxic in terms of oxygen use, pretty much refers to anything above a partial pressure of 0.18, around 0.18. So, if you're breathing into somebody else artificially at 0.16, you're keeping them, you're giving them enough oxygen to theoretically stay alive. And I always thought that was an interesting way to look at, at how we, you know, how we manage our own oxygen use. So, so the key to this whole thing is you're going to use up that 5% per breath over the course of an hour, regardless of how many breaths you use to get it into your system. Yeah, exactly. You're, like I said, your body's energy 
expenditure and requirement doesn't change if you breathe or not. You know, if you can take a complete breath in, your body will work and produce CO2 at the same rate as it does when you breathe in twice. Uh, that's not going to change. So if you breathe for the requirement to produce energy to swim around underwater, you, 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 you're cheating yourself by thinking that you can skip breathe to save gas. Because when we hold our breath, our breathing cycle doesn't stop. You know, we say this a lot in our courses, taking a rig out of your mouth doesn't mean that your body stops breathing. You stop inhaling and exhaling, yes, of course, but your body's metabolism, your body's energy production, your consumption of oxygen, production of CO2 is still ongoing. So if you hold your breath, the CO2 level is just going to rise. If you then sharply exhale and inhale again, you might not have expelled all the CO2 that you'd normally would in a normal, you know, cyclic breathing cycle. So what ends up happening is that for every time you hold your breath and shortly exhale and then inhale again and hold your breath, you, you retain a tiny amount of CO2 that normally would be washed out by your exhalation. So what ends up happening in that is that you have to breathe more heavily at towards the end of your, you know, towards the end of your dive or towards the end of your skip breathing cycle. And that ends up consuming more gas, usually more gas than, than you would as if you were just breathing normally. So if you are breathing, I'm just making up numbers now, but if you're breathing once every 30 seconds and you're breathing in, let's just talk about the surface, you're breathing in 20%, you're breathing out 16%. If you skip breathe and now you're breathing once a minute, half the number of times, you're going to breathe in 21% and you might breathe out 12%. So you've metabolized more oxygen over a longer period of time, but your body is still using up the equivalent of what it would have had you breathe, been breathing every 30 seconds and breathing in and breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. The difference is what Ben just said, which is you're, you're going to use up X amount of oxygen molecules to live no matter what you're doing and no matter how many times you breathe, but the CO2 is the really critical aspect of this. So if you are skip breathing... You're not saving any gas because you're still burning up oxygen molecules at the same rate. What you are doing is loading CO2. Exactly. We call CO2 the deadly killer, the deadly, what do we call it? The deadly... The silent killer. The silent killer. Yeah. I knew it was one of those things. Yeah. You don't know you're building up CO2 until it's too late. Usually, exactly. You start to get signs of nausea, some focus issues, headaches, things like that. And it's, then it's the time just to, okay, let me just stop take a chill pill and start to get my breathing back under control where I'm breathing in, breathing out, just like a meditative state, breathing in, breathing out. And that will get the CO2 equalized out in your, of your body pretty quickly. Yeah, because the, the, the CO2 does have one function in the body and that is actually giving the, the impulse to the brain that you need to replenish the air supply consisting of oxygen in your lungs. That's basically the function of CO2. CO2 level rises, that's get, that gets noticed in your body and sends a signal to refresh your air supply. So if you let that rise, that signal just becomes stronger and stronger and it then requires you to take three or four more breaths towards the end of a cycle that's now just 
happening on the end of that cycle instead of just spread out over the whole course of the time. Right. The other way we the other way we talk about that is that CO2 is the trigger for breathing. Yeah. It's not the reduction of of oxygen that's in your system that causes you to breathe. It's the increase in CO2 that causes you to breathe, which if we want to go down another tangent is the reason for something called shallow water blackout. Right? That you hyperventilate enough to clear out so much CO2 from your body so you can take in so much oxygen before a free dive or something that you actually run out of metabolized oxygen in your body before your system builds up enough CO2 to say, okay, I need to breathe. So you don't breathe and you quietly pass out. Yeah, that's it. That's pretty so, pretty much it. Right? So exactly. In so many, so in, in many, in many skip, ways, it's it. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Exactly. I mean, so the reasons for skip breathing is if you're uncomfortable with the water, try to work on that, uh, and then I would suggest uh, a program like ESM, Extreme Scuba Makeover. If you're doing the skip breathing thing because of a buoyancy thing that you're un un um, uh, unhappy of putting gas, for example, in your suit or in your wing, because uh, feeling that you can easily or get, more easily get it out of your lungs than out of your wing or your dry suit, try to work on that. <laughs> then take an ESM class. <laughs> Probably an extreme school makeover also work that, but uh, any of our classes are heavily focused on, on, on doing breathing control for your buoyancy. So essentials classes will highlight that as well. And then if you're doing it to save gas, we hopefully now convince you that you're not saving gas. I would almost argue the most against that you would actually use more gas when you skip breathe um, if you take everything into account. So, so, so don't skip breathe to save gas. Don't do it to change your buoyancy. And if you feel that you come out of a dive with a big strong headache and, it had, and your gas supply was okay, you're probably one of those divers that does skip breathing unconsciously. Uh, so uh, ask your buddy to film you from behind or from the side for a, for a certain period and see if that breathing uh, is cyclic, if it's just normal, slow, controlled breathing, or if you actually see very long breaks between your inhalation and your exhalation. It's one of the so. coolest things about diving is we can see the breaths. Yeah, exactly. we can see the breaths. I know when I'm when I'm teaching really precise diving, like in an IDC or something like that, I'm always watching the bubbles. Yeah, because you know what we find in our in our basic six series, which the first one is very simple: remove the regulator and put it back in. People have this habit of that they've developed over years of not breathing out unless there's a regulator in your mouth, and I I've never understood this, but it's this thing where. Breathing only happens when the regulator's in your mouth. So people will take a breath. So if you're trying to maintain buoyancy when you take the regulator out of your mouth and put it back, we find all the time people will take a breath, like it's the last breath on, breath on earth or under earth. They'll take the regulator out of their mouth. They'll hold the breath so they don't, because they're afraid to breathe out. But meanwhile, they took a big breath, so they're starting to flow up. And what happens? The regulator goes in and a giant breath goes out. And what happens then? They come back down. Yeah. They descend, right? And so they quick take another breath, and it's too much, and you're going above and below and above and below your depth all the time. But if you can train yourself, this is another shirt we have, right? 
the breathing, you mentioned this earlier, the breathing cycle continues regardless of whether there's a regulator in your mouth. If you can train yourself to breathe out when the regulator's out of your mouth, it makes buoyancy control in those exercises in that scenario and the regulators out easy because you take a breath, you take the regulator out, you breathe out normally into the water, no regulator, put the regulator back in, take a normal breath exactly. and keep the breathing cycle going. And this is this doesn't cause more gas usage no. and it doesn't cause CO2 buildup and it does make you calmer and calm makes you breathe less and there's a gas extension system by just breathing calmly yeah all right there you go skip breathing don't skip breathe um i think yeah and i think as a disclaimer no matter what we've said about this whole thing don't skip breathe <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> basically just don't do it and if you're not sure why then learn why but in the meantime just don't do yeah, it yeah it's not burnt no point okay all right uh, next question that came in is is somebody was obviously looking at our tech um, syllabus and why do we train for multiple failures when we plan a dive for only one failure? Yeah, exactly. That's a pretty good question. It is a very good question. It, 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 I think it warrants a little bit of an introduction for people who haven't taken any of our tech classes uh, to explain how we actually conduct those or shortly. Uh, so in, in very, to make a very long story short, um, what we consider to be failures, or in other words, critical skills, are actual scenarios we put into place that are likely to happen on a dive. So, and, and they, get, they get simulated in the most realistic way possible. Um, so it won't be uh, some kind of a slate or cue card that gets presented to the diver. It'll be, like said, the most like real life product reproduction of that failure. So that could be um, some kind of a problem with a first stage on the back of the diver's twin set. And we would simulate that with a little air gun uh, with a very sharp nozzle that produces a very fine stream of bubbles. And we would, as the tech instructor, point those bubbles or create those bubbles exactly at the point of failure. So that could be the DIN connection of the valve, that could be the hose, that could be where the hose goes into the first stage and so on. And that's what is considered a failure. And then the team, together with the diver who's having the failure, have to decide if that failure is a fixable failure or if it's a non-fixable failure. And then decide on an exit strategy after that. During that whole thing, the whole team is under the watchful eye of the instructor because the instructor might not want to test the diver who's been given the failure, but he might want to test the, the teammate's response to that failure. So this is what makes this whole learning experience so valuable because it 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 creates a learning experience for the whole team it's much like a simulator in an airline yeah exactly right? where we've figured out a way to safely recreate problems um in an environment that's just not dangerous right yeah. we're not shutting off people's gas we're not knocking regulators out of their mouth we're not pulling second stage is off of mouthpieces. We're simulating failures all the while you can breathe. Because truly in diving, the, the only real emergency 
is is you can't breathe. Yeah, and almost everything else is is a situation, but can't breathe is bad. Exactly. So and, and these things, they really take into account that whenever something like that happens, as dramatic as it may sound, the first couple of times it happens, we want to work towards the reaction being, oh darn, something broke. I might have to cut my dive short. You know? Instead of a full-blown panic attack where your mask on the inside gets defogged by your eyeballs and you start flailing around and trying to fix something that you have no clue of what you're doing. So we're, we're trying to work around the complete understanding and a holistic approach towards your equipment that you know what to do when something fails and your team is aware. So the diver who gets the failure starts to stabilize the situation. His closest teammate that he's got into contact with is supervising that stabilization of the failure before he gets called in to see if he can fix or non-fix that problem. And the third teammate in that team has now the, the job of the new captain and starts to protect the exit side or starts to anticipate what that outcome will be of that failure. Because usually the diver number two and three can see if it's fixable or non-fixable even before the initial reaction of diver one who's gotten the failure has even begun. So that's a short intro on what we consider to be failures. Now on those tech Now classes, at the entry level, hang yeah. on one second, at the entry level, generally the failures are simulated out of gas, loss of mask, which always comes with a very short notice, but then loss of mask so you can't see, and um, a valve or half gas failure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in a cave or an overhead environment, the fourth one would be loss of a primary light. That's 95% of the failures fit into those, um, those three or four categories. Yeah, exactly. So to, to continue, we, when we talk about when we plan for failures during theory and during these classes, we usually say we plan for one major failure and then we exit the dive. Uh, but then the question came up, why didn't we then train multiple failures? And, and that's a very good question because usually when something happens that's non-fixable, regardless of what it is, you know, primary light in overhead environment, some kind of a regulator problem, a hose breakage or whatever, uh, anything that can't be fixed and, or has lost too much gas to safely continue to dive, um, is going to be exited. And, the chances of something else catastrophic happening on that dive on your way out is obviously very, very low. But all of us here listening to the podcast probably wear our seatbelt when we're driving a car, you know? Um, I don't know, if it, is it uh, mandatory in the, in the States to have a seatbelt? Oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's also here, but... How often have we used or have been in a situation where we actually needed that seatbelt? Very, very little, luckily, for most of us. So it's not the fact that multiple failures are very rare. I mean, these big critical failures are very rare to begin with. Why do we train them in the first place? It's because of the consequences and not because of the likelihood. And this is a very big distinction. We don't put a seatbelt on of the likelihood that we need a seatbelt because every other day we drive into a tree. No, it's because of the consequences of when we do drive into that tree, that tree 
unless it's a little apple tree in the back of my yard, is not going to budge and you're going to go flying through the windshield. And that consequence is too high to be willing to accept. And that's the same thing in diving. So, you know, a lot of divers and all courses have these out of gear, out of gas training scenarios. It's very rare that you actually run out of gas. I mean, there's other scenarios where you need to share gas, wrong gas and all that sort of stuff. But it's the consequence and not the eventuality if it happens or how the likelihood if it will happen. You know, we do such good gas planning in our courses that the idea of somebody running out of gas, it's almost nil, almost doesn't happen. And to a point where in the last few years, we've started to refer to that particular kind of failure, not as out of gas, but as gas not available. Yeah. So something happened that caused the gas to be not available. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this is you don't wake up in one morning and go into our recreational class or our rec two class, recreational two class, and all of a sudden get hit with four failures. It's a very structured program where depending on the level of the class, we either do single non-compounding failures and then reset, do it again, or we do um, two failures or we have um, some failures that involve a distraction. So, um, for example, if you're having out of gas scenario and you have to do an ascent with that out of gas, so we call that a, a, a failure with a distraction, hmm. and then we build you up to one failure, two failure, three failures. And a lot of it is to be able to manage the diving while these distractions are happening. Exactly. Because exactly. if you can't dive while you're thinking, then, uh, you know the task loading gets to a point where it becomes overwhelming and that's where problems snowball. Our, our very simplest at the very most basic level, our basic six series of exercises, regulator out, regulator exchange, regulator replace, modified estrel, all that, really are nothing more than a buoyancy, trim, position, and team awareness drill, but with distractions. Exactly, primarily, but with distraction. So can you manage those four things, buoyancy, trim, team awareness, and um, whatever the other thing I was said, while you're having to think about clipping off a regulator? And in some ways, that's the thing on multiple failures too. It's like, if you can think your way out of, okay, this guy's got a valve failure and I was just given an out of gas, but he's on his necklace, so I have to go to the guy over here who's got full gas. If you can think that through and still maintain buoyancy, trim, position, and team awareness, then you're really to a point where when one failure does happen, it's manageable. Or conversely, when you're in a tough situation, you're relaxed because you know you can manage these failures. Um, you know, I was down in Mexico last week in the caves and, and, and it was very, you know, I'm so comfortable with those four things buoyancy trim position team awareness and all that that you know it, it makes exiting in an emergency like okay if something happens we're going to call the dive and we're going to get out exactly but i know that the diving part is okay yeah and we saw this in flying when i was teaching flying a ton it was the same thing it's like you know no matter what happens stop think fly the airplane hmm. and then everything else yeah and then everything else exactly and i, I think this is this is mainly the key thing that we always talk about in these technical classes and also the, the higher up um, beginner classes, uh, even recreational level, um, is 
is an emphasis on people trying to hurt themselves <laughs> because it's usually that's what we do you know if and like like Jeff mentioned earlier with a mask coming off we never swim up to some student and even you know do it slowly to take a mask off for the sake of that taking a mask off that's a basic six number six mask off and on I mean if we want to test that we'll do that drill but when we when we implement that skill is like if if diver a let's say constantly when he turns around turns around with the fins in the face of diver b and every every dive we do training dive gets filmed so probably on a video debrief point that out and say hey diver a look your fins were very close to diver b's mask be careful with that because you can you know throw that mask away or or at least dislodge it um all right yeah uh, and then they come with some kind of an excuse why they did it and they knew they were very close and obviously they were um, and then on dive number two when dive number A turns around and his fins come tangibly close to the mask of diver B that's when we take diver B's mask and it's not to test diver B's ability to take off a mask and clear a mask or whatever no it's just to prove a point is that you as diver A can make things a bit harder for your buddy and now the dive has to be ended because that's why we train, you know, or another point you can pick up a backup mask, but usually that goes away too. We want to see if the dive team now can do an exit strategy with one diver being compromised and not being able to see clearly. And it's an emphasis on what the divers did wrong themselves. Similar to the fact that if we're on the surface going down to the bottom and diver A bombs down and waits for everyone at the bottom, and on the video debrief, we say, hey, don't do that because now you're solo diving and we don't really do solo diving. If he does that on dive number two, I tell the team to stay on the surface. I swim down to dive number A and say, hey, you're out of gas. <laughs> and then the look in their eyes is always classic because, okay, shit, yeah, now I know. The team is on the surface, I'm on the bottom. That's not a good place to be when you're out of gas. So it's always these things that highlight small mistakes that you make as a diver that we try to work upon and try to point out that situational awareness can make you aware of failures before they happen and and that's what we're working on so multiple failures are usually the result of a less i'm not going to say wrong decision because if the divers decided to exit it's fine but if they did it less clean or less efficient, we might want to make a point of that inefficiency by adding another failure that could be a result of that decision they made. Uh, that can be putting a diver that's out of gas in the wrong position, like on the outside of a team instead of on the inside. Uh, that could be from a failure on the valves, uh, making a mistake of staying on the actual cylinder that's now slowly depleting and running out of gas consequently because you're breathing off a tank that's being depleted before you're finished. All that sort of stuff can help with adding multiple failures. So yes, we only plan for one, but we train for multiple. I want to talk about the playbook for a minute because it just sounds like this could be super random, but it's not. One of the things that separates out the way we teach instructors from, I think, almost every other agency is the fact that we have this thing called the playbook. It's been in place since 2008 when we wrote the first one. 
And what the playbook does for the instructors is define very specifically the, the f- acceptable failures and the order that those failures can be presented to the students in for every single class at every single level. So at the recreational one level, recreational two level, rec three, and then techreational tech one, two, three, and, and so on. Each of those classes has in the playbook an, a, an exact program of how the instructor can deploy these failures, which is what we, you know, we call this critical skills training, so as to make the whole process educational. Hmm. None of us want to have that instructor who just starts failing stuff enough that the team falls apart so when they get to the surface, the instructor can yell at them. That's not education. That's an experience of instructor ego. So the point of doing these failures, the point of doing critical skills training in this simulated environment is to make the team stronger and make the team able to think their way out of scenarios. It's not to stroke the ego of the instructor. So we're very, very careful and strict about how the instructors present these failures in a way that becomes educational. And as a student, I mean, I think we can probably tell all the students and future students this, you won't know that it's organized. It's going to feel like chaos the first couple of times these failures start coming at you. Total random. But it's not. It'll come full circle in the video debrief. Yeah. And it's a very structured program that we have for, for delivering these simulated failures to the students. It's none of it's random. None of it. I mean, basically it's like an if then, right? If this happens, you do this. It's like Ben was saying, right? If, if this guy's solo diving, he goes out of gas. If the team is positioned wrong, the guy on the, on the outs gets an out of gas. Um, if somebody comes along and swims to the wrong side of the exit side on the line, their mask comes off because they have no way home. Hmm. Uh, because now they can't see the line and they're behind it. So all of this stuff's structured. And I think that's the key to why our technical classes and our advanced classes have been so successful with students. And it's it's because we don't make this stuff up as we go. No. You know, this is what our IDCs are about. Our instructor development courses are about. Half of it is showing the instructors how to safely simulate these scenarios as an educational process exactly it's it's about a chess game i mean if if the instructor of the students are 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 having a a hard day at work (laughs) the instructor is even you know sweating bullets behind them because uh, the instructor is thinking at is it as a chess game so it's it's like three steps ahead because i want to put one failure i'm hoping for this response and then i can actually elicit that that diver sends up an smb to exit the dive because I want to somehow test that diver's ability to send the SAP up under a you know a distracting scenario and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't then you have to jiggle around and that's where you know the the IDC the tech IDCs come into play where we really give the instructor candidates the tools to to make the team do what you want them to do without telling them what to do <laughs> and how to respond when they don't so we wrote all that down, and we've had it for years and years and years. It's it, it's like in it's like it's within chess. You can buy books of 
you know, chess games played by what are these chess names, Russian names, Chekharov and Bukharov, you know, that like it's a book like he did this play and then he did that play and then he did this play and then he did that play and then he moved the pawn and his options were one two three four and five and he chose two exactly and that made the other guy have options three through eight and he chose six yeah no it's crazy but it's very much the same thing it's exactly the same like our playbook yeah so that's our story about why we train for multiple failures even though we plan for one so cool um, all right, we have a few minutes left, so let's let's touch on these others um, quickly. So we did a a, a video a while ago about navigation, and then a, a question came up: if there was any f- functional way to navigate underwater. And I think it was a electronically, 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 yeah. yeah. And 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 there is. I mean, lately, many of these things came came to light, came to the market. Some of them stuck, others didn't. I saw on a dive show once a device you can put on your leg that measured your kicks, your fin kicks, believe it or not. Um, like, you know, like a cadence measure on a bicycle. Um, and I was like, okay, but what if you don't kick consistently? <laughs> it's like, you know, you glide. Well, they didn't really know, but um, so some of them didn't <laughs> stick. <laughs> some of them were just a Kickstarter. Okay, that's like the, the spare air guy. Exactly, from failure waiting to happen. Um, but there are other companies who took it a bit further, and uh, one of them is Suex. Suex is an Italian-based um, scooter manufacturer, underwater scooter manufacturer, and they've uh, recently put out a, a device called the, uh, the Synapsi, which is a, a nose you stick on front of certain model of scooter, and it talks to uh, their uh, computer, which is basically a, a bottom timer and a digital compass. And it takes readings from that nose. There's a tiny little propeller in the front that measures uh, the water passing through, and together with gyroscopes inside that nose and a GPS, which doesn't work underwater, but does it take a ping when you start the dive to set off you know, the whole thing and depth measuring device and a whole bunch of stuff they've tested and that really looks promising it's very new only very few uh, units are on the market and we're actually uh, waiting on uh, two units to test out because here in Denmark uh, we want to cross from Denmark to Sweden Um, mainly because there's good diving in Sweden and uh, with COVID regulations, the border are very heavily patrolled. So we just want to bypass. No, that's 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 a joke. That's not it. We want to we want to just see uh, to put that machine to the test. It's a crossing that passes from uh, the part of uh, Denmark that's close to the part of Sweden, and it's about four kilometers uh, underwater at about thirty six meters of depth. And we want to use these synapse heads to see if if that's an added benefit because they can be a bit of a, a cross current so we're going to see if that in some way can help us navigate it easily and uh, and stay on course and see if we can hit the beach on the other in the other country that would be nice okay so uh, that was my question as you were describing the system is how does the how does it deal with current when the actual water is moving in it and changing the um the effective water the effective speed through the water yeah and that was exactly the first question I had. How does it work? <laughs> when I met them in, uh, I think, the boot show, um, 
and one of our instructors, Andrea Kappa, is working closely with SUEX as well. And I said, I was, you know, uh, I could be less polite because we know the guy, you know, <laughs> we could go straight and hit some shins <laughs> and start being devil's advocate. It's like, how does it work? You You swim with the current and you're measuring basically your speed through the water, which is lower because you're going with the water. And then you turn around and you're flying into the water, basically. So your speed through the water is faster. And this is exactly, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is exactly the, the, the whole problem that airplanes deal with because they have speed over ground and speed through the air, which is definitely not the same thing, right? No, it's not that problem because inertial navigation and GPS works above the water. Okay, they have the GPS. So we can establish ground speed versus true airspeed. Yeah. And, and you know, see the offset because we just know how fast we're traveling over the ground. Underwater, it'd be super easy if our, if our you know, iPhone GPS worked, but it doesn't. Exactly. It doesn't. So this is why the, the current thing is interesting to me. Yeah. And that's what their response was that did um, the gyroscopes and the accelerometers that are in the nose can actually detect the forward movement and the, the G-forces uh, uh, associated with that and be able to calibrate for that difference in current. But that's something that I'm very skeptical about still, so. Okay, I wanna see that, particularly when there's a yaw angle, right? When the current's coming at you from 45 degrees. Well, exactly, I mean. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you manage the geometry? I don't know, but you know, we gotta call Andrea and find out, and um, Andrea and find out and see what the story is on this, because it's, it's mm. you know, I, I, I've studied quite a bit of aerodynamics because of the bike thing. And yeah, and paying attention to yaw angles on different wheel depths and things like that. So it's a can of worms, right? So, but again, the whole thing is super easy when you've got GPS. Yeah, now, exactly. You know, because, <laughs> but which is the big missing component yeah, underwater? It is. So, all right. So we'll we'll keep our eyes out on the Suex um, product. They do make a bitchin' scooter. They do. So uh, sure, um, I like mine as well. That. That's uh, that's for sure. So I'm I'm very very excited, and you can bet your you're, you're, I'm not going to say something inappropriate, but you can bet a lot that we're definitely going to tweet, blog, vlog, and, and everything about that, and do a podcast about it when we get the chance to dive these things and to see if they're all they're cracked up to be. Uh, when you look at the price, they're not cheap. So I think there's something in it. And uh, knowing a company like Suex, uh, it's not going to be a toy that's unusable because they have many uh, military contracts that are looking into these um, nose cones. So, um, Stay tuned. So we have a crossing here in Southern California that I've always wanted to do, which is um, uh, the mainland of Los Angeles to uh, Catalina Island. Oh, right. Um, How far is was, that? Well, it was a cow sills song in the 70s. Remember, 26 miles across the sea. Oh, really? I'm not that old yet. So it's <laughs> it's like 42 kilometers, 26 miles. 26 miles. Um, 26 miles from point to point. And, you know, we've always That's looked what, at 40 kilometers? a thousand ways to do it. And, yeah. yeah, 42. It's a marathon. So yeah. when um, one of the things that happened with side mount, of course, is now we can change cylinders underwater. So it is possible, um, you know, if you're at, you know, 10, 12 feet, 4 meters, 3 meters, something like that, that somebody off the boat can actually lower a cylinder to you. Yeah. And you can just, you know, 
unplug one and plug in the other and send it back up. So we can continue that way, which is cool. So I've got this whole thing figured out where, you know, you switch to a tow line. So the guy in front is towing you while you make your gas switch. And then you switch positions and you tow somebody while they're making their gas bottle switch. So you can keep going. Yeah, that could um, be done. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to be like eight hours or something crazy like that. No, probably longer. I think it's going to more like 10 or 12 at least. I don't remember. We, we have to figure that out. And then they would have we'd have to have you know swap scooters also because the batteries won't last. So we'd have a rack of batteries. Scooter comes down. You switch scooters. Send one back to the boat. They switch the batteries. An hour later, they switch them. So we get that whole thing going. Yeah. Even on rebreathers, you'd be pushing it because you you'd probably be twelve out or in twelve hours in the water. Yeah. Well, rebreathers won't is not all that function. Yeah, it's not all that functional, that shallow. You're better off on open circuit. So there's lots of problems with it, but it's an interesting challenge. And when we add the navigation system to it, you know, it makes it a little bit more independent because, you know, the the way we looked at it is we would just follow a tagline on the boat. You know, yeah, that's less challenging. Boat would go straight. (laughs) We would just be able to follow the wake of the boat it's a little less challenging than if we were you know the boat was behind us <laughs> you know um and we had to do the navigation by ourselves but then of course you know that 26 miles or 42 kilometers could very easily become 32 miles and and 50 kilometers from just the zigzagging part exactly <laughs> so it's well who knows what all these navigational features and dingamabobs bring uh, open up for or yeah for us it'll happen i mean in, you know air air Commercial aircraft have had inertial nav- navigation for years, right? Yeah. Where they set their point on the surface and the, the computer just figures out the rest without any external forces. Mm. And, you know, they those were used and are still in use as far as I know in airlines, um, even though GPS is so common now because you're self-sufficient. Exactly. It takes a, a gutsy guy or a woman like Amelia Eckhart to just, you know, cross, be the first one to cross over and see see where you end up. Yeah, literally crossover. So hmm? we don't want to go that way. <laughs> so, all right. So we have a couple of little things that we, we I think we can save till next time. Um, uh, one of them is what happened to Scubatics, since we're yeah, talking about Scubatics. Exactly. So Scubatics was a program that we invented before UTD, which is underwater acrobatic competition in a pool with a scooter. And it's modeled after kind of like... Uh, uh, air show not air show flying but competition aerobatic flying and we have a book and we have a dvd and videos and contest rules and all that yeah so combine the awesomeness of underwater scooters with the adrenaline of aerobatics and synchronized swimming all together and a and a and a competitive in a competitive element. setting, yeah, yeah, with a rule book and right. And judges. So I think what we should do is we should probably do a podcast on scubatics. Yeah, um, but I want to do it in the fall because really it's a winter thing, right? Because it 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 happens in a pool. So um, for those of few people who have remembered and um, asked about scubatics recently, it's alive, it's well. We have all the content. And um, I think we'll do a push in like September, October. Yeah, it'd be fun. As people are starting to get too cold to dive outside and we'll set up. There are some awesome pools for it. I think if we do the, um, we're talking about setting up a class in this new really cool pool in Madrid in Spain that has a, a deep pool and a shallow section on it. But that would be ideal because um, it's also got the glass wall. Yeah, exactly. Because part of scubatics is the judges have to be underwater, you know, 
with their scorecards and things like that. But if you can find a pool with a glass wall, the judges can be in the air. And that would be really cool. So we'll... Um, mm. And we have equipment for this. It's really cool. We started using those little six cubic foot argon bottles as the breathing gas um, tucked into this little sea soft vest with a little tiny short hose and one regulator. And we were getting like, I don't know, uh, eight or 10 minutes of gas out of that thing for a four minute routine. But of course you're diving at three feet, four feet. So it, it's really fun. It, the whole thing was really fun. So we'll do that. We'll for sure do that this winter. It's to be cool. fun to revamp that program, that's for sure. So, All right, there you go. So there are, are basically three obscure questions. And, and to sum up, don't skip breathe. Do train for multiple failures. Yeah. <laughs> and wait and earn a lot of money so you can navigate underwater electronically when this stuff comes out. Exactly. <laughs> Summarizes our, our podcast Kinda, for today. Yeah. So um, please, if you haven't done it, uh, leave a rating and review for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps everybody else find these these talks and uh, continue to send us the uh, your obscure questions and we'll, or not so obscure questions in the case of skip breathing, and we'll turn them into obscure reasons why it's not an obscure question. Exactly. Uh, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure something out for that. And uh, you can always reach us at info at utdscubadiving.com. Individually, ben at utdscubadiving.com or jeff at utdscubadiving.com. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you and all on the next one. So be safe. Bye-bye. Hey, wait. Oh, what? We got through a whole podcast and we didn't talk about cycling. Oh, my God. It might be our first one. Well, you we mentioned it a little bit with aerodynamics. A little tiny bit on aerodynamics. But... All right. Good night, everyone. <laughs> good night. Bye-bye. Hell is going outside One way Working down the street